Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, MEF Century Radio. We have a great show for you today, Wednesday, January 9th, 2019, bringing to you some of the best news coming from the Middle East affecting you here in America. First and foremost, we have two guests joining us today that I am very, very happy to present to you. Sariel Birnbaum, the author of the latest Middle East Quarterly article, Egyptian Islamists Fight Back on Screen, a review of how Islamists are using culture, film, radio, and television to try to inoculate and to inculcate the messages that they try to purvey from their own medieval point of view to all of their viewers, going past government, going past the regular mainstream media, and using their own version of Hollywood to try to influence others. And second, we have the latest on Donald Trump's border security speech that took place last night from the Oval Office with Cliff Smith, the director of the Middle East Forum's Washington Project. But first... Over the past three or four days, we have seen American allies trying to get reassurances from Donald Trump's national security team in the wake of his announcement at the end of December that U.S. troops will be withdrawing from Syria in the near future. The timeline starts like this. National Security Advisor John Bolton arrived in Israel over the weekend to give Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli national security apparatus assurances that the U.S. withdrawal from Syria will not endanger Israeli or other regional security interests of the United States. He presented five conditions for the United States to be able to complete its withdrawal from Syria. First, Iran will not be allowed to gain a foothold in any of the territory that the United States leaves. Second, The Kurdish forces that have been allying with the United States in northeast Syria, fighting against ISIS, securing the borders, ensuring reconstruction, not allowing for there to be a resurgence of terrorism, and most importantly, creating a wedge between Turkey, Russia, the Syrian government, Hezbollah, Iraqi Shia militias, and all other kinds of nefarious actors amounting to a bulwark against radicalism. Third, the United States will still maintain a presence in southeast Syria in an area on the Jordanian border called Al-Tanaf, which is a key observation post between Iraq, Syria, and Jordan that can monitor the transfer of weapons and ammunition from Iran to the Syrian government. The fourth condition allowing the Israelis and other regional allies to ensure that they still have their own security guarantees that the United States have been working off of for the past six years. And last, ISIS must be permanently defeated in Syria and also in Iraq for the U.S. to be able to withdraw. This is a stark contrast, if not a clarification, of Trump's message from the end of December. Secretary of State Pompeo could not have said it better. We will not allow anyone to massacre our allies, specifically the Kurds. Now, one only has to go back to 1975 
when then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger threw the Kurds under the bus, allowing for them to be slaughtered after the second Kurdish-Iraqi war. This is history now going back almost 43 years. But one must remember that the history of the United States' involvement with the Kurds goes back since the advent of the modern Middle East. They were American allies during World War II. They were key in fighting back against Soviet influence in the Middle East during the Cold War. They were our allies during the Gulf War. They were our allies during the second Operation Iraqi Freedom that took place in 2003. And they have been a key ally in fighting back against ISIS. To withdraw from northeast Syria and leave the Kurds to fend for themselves is a stark reminder of what American policy could have been if these assurances were not delivered to them and to other American allies in the region. Only two weeks ago, the Saudis, the Bahrainis, and other Gulf Arab allies, including Egypt and Israel and some other non-Arab allies of the United States, had a very, very stark contrast in how they were feeling about Trump's presence in the region when he immediately announced his withdrawal from Syria. I hope that these reassurances being delivered by Trump's advisors are enough to give confidence back in our Arab and non-Arab allies in the Middle East that the United States is not conducting an irresponsible withdrawal. This has been met much to the chagrin of America's frenemies or our sometimes friend and sometimes enemies and also America's adversaries in the region like Vladimir Putin, like Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and even the dictator in Damascus Bashar al-Assad with a certain amount of surprise. There were two conversations that took place between Turkey's president and the president of the United States Donald Trump which led up to Trump's announcement on Twitter of all places that the United States was going to withdraw. Instead of meeting with National Security Advisor Bolton in Ankara and in Istanbul yesterday, a meeting had been scheduled between Turkey's president and between that of Trump's National Security Advisor. When Erdogan heard about Bolton's preconditions for the American Syria withdrawal, he canceled the meeting decided to address a party conference of the AKP, this is Erdogan's political party in Turkey, and started to lambast the president and his advisors, saying the conversation that he had had with Trump at the end of December and the results of that conversation did not reflect the talking points or the assurances that, Bolt, that Bolton and Pompeo had delivered in the past week. This is a lesson, though, not just for Americans, but also for individuals and countries and other non-state actors observing the actions, behavior, and policy decisions of President Trump. One day he may wake up and come to a decision, but eventually he comes around to make the responsible policy action. Over the last two weeks, I have vehemently criticized the actions of the president as it results in the Syria policy at least the one that he announced at the end of December. But now he's not necessarily walking it back, and I still advocate for a permanent American position in northeast Syria. It's necessary considering the other actors that are in that region right now and what America stands to lose if we are not present in that region. It's like Senator Lindsey Graham said after the 10-year review of the response to 9-11. 
It's better our soldiers are stationed there than having the enemy come fight here on our own turf. That's what the military is for. And so long as America's enemies are positioned in a way to obfuscate and to kinetically oppose our interests in the Middle East, there must be an American presence to act as a bulwark against those conditions that they try to prevail upon our allies and eventually upon us. If we ignore the threat, if we withdraw, if we isolate ourselves just to our shores, we lose influence, we lose power, and we lose the ability to permeate our interests in that region. And in doing so, we abdicate our power position to the Russians, to the Turks. And you might ask yourself, why is it so important that America maintains a position in Syria or at least the broader Middle East? Think about the flow of oil. Think about the flow of resources that we require. Think about the march of China with their Silk Road project or the expansionist tendencies of the president of Russia. And if Turkey is able to gain a foothold in Syria, if they are able to influence in Iraq, if they are able to start aspersing their neo-Ottomanism, returning to the dreams of an empire that they lost 101 years ago, then the other countries that will have to fear are not those just in the Middle East, but those to Turkey's West. Their European ambitions is not something that they tried to seek only during Ottoman times. They are also a reminder of the ambitions that they try to seek today. The warped dreams and delusions of grandeur that we find in Erdogan's mind are not just limited to the Middle East. They are of a global nature, and the United States must be positioned in such a way to be able to deflect that and to put the Turkish dictator back in his place. After these messages, Sariel Birnbaum. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. 
Unfortunately, my guest has had some technical difficulties and hasn't been able to call in yet, but there is plenty to talk about. And we will be joined by Oren Litwin, the director of our Islamists and Politics Project, to discuss not just the actions of the new Islamists who have been elected to Congress, but also the response to President Trump's border security initiative that came live from the Oval Office last night. Now, before we begin to speak about the means of what has been happening with President Trump and his reaction to Islamists in Congress, one has to look at the eventual evolution of how they came to power in the first place. Now, first and foremost, I think that it's important to notice that there is a reaction right now in the U.S. Congress that represents the actions of the U.S. government and its people. I think that we have to be able to understand that beyond anything that the, uh, the, the people have been choosing in terms of how they have been able to respond to what's going on in the United States, the position of Islam in this country has year by year increased more and more, especially in terms of their political power, their cultural power, their social acumen. And beyond that, I think that we have to understand that when you have the rise of certain grassroots Islamist groups, eventually they will organize and form blocks that will allow them to obtain political power. The rise of Tlaib from Michigan is indicative of that increase in political participation and then the transfer of that participation into a voting block and then being able to get a certain amount of representation in Congress. Now, Tlaib started off as a state legislator in Michigan. She then was able to form her own grassroots constituency and was eventually able to get to the position that she was getting a mandate for a congressional seat. Already on her first few days in Congress, she has illustrated the following positions. Number one, U.S. senators have been accused of dual loyalty, of one, having a certain affinity for the United States, and second, having an affinity for Israel. Now, as an American Jew, I'm used to the accusation coming from Islamists that I have some sort of preference for another country rather than the United States, which is absurd. But now that Tlaib is using this canard against legislators who say it's okay to put a preference towards an American ally, especially in the wake of Americans trying to act out against that ally, which is detrimental to America's national security interests, and she starts using this canard, that's the first indication that she's using doublespeak. The second is the way in which she categorized President Trump, allowing criticism against him to go down to the murky levels of indecency that he himself has been accused of. She acknowledged this morning that that was a distraction, but we should not allow her to get away with insulting the office of the presidency as much as we do not allow Donald Trump to get away when he may use certain demeaning language towards others. And the third thing that's come forward is her affiliation with American Islamist organizations, some who were born in their roots out of terror organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations Care, the Islamic Circle of North America, and the Islamist, not the Islamic, but the Islamic Society, who is Islamic, of North America. And to speak more about this, we're now joined by Oren Litwin, the director of our Islamist in Politics Project. Oren, welcome to the program. Uh, well, thank you for having me. So you've had a, a, quite a, an exciting nine days, the first nine days of the year, where your project previously was only tracking 
the campaign contributions that Islamists were making to American politicians, but now you have Islamists active in the U.S. Congress. What can you tell us besides the first two or three things that I was able to speak about, about what kind of imprint they've made in their first week in the legislature? Well, I think there's one very important thing we have to notice about what uh, Congresswoman Talib had said, not just it itself, that, that she's accusing people of dual loyalty, but also that that this is part of a uh, concerted strategy to try to gradually denormalize Jewish participation in American politics. Because, uh, I mean, Tlaib isn't just some uh, nobody who was elected out of the middle of nowhere. She had served in the state legislature for two terms, so she knows what politics is. She knows how to be uh, considered when she speaks. And for her to choose to speak like this, I think we have to view it as part of a larger BDS program as far as trying to uh, to delegitimize not only Israel, but even Jewish participation in politics in the United States. So there was, um, there was, her, there was Ilhan Omar, her uh, uh, fellow Islamist congresswoman from uh, Minnesota, from uh, Keith Ellison's old seat, and she also spoke out essentially in support of uh, BDS. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of that as the uh, session goes on, because these... Uh, these politicians are finding that as they're able to, to ratchet up the rhetoric, they're not really getting serious consequences for the most part. And they're going to try to keep pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope until they achieve their goal. So, Oren, we now have a block of Islamists active in the U.S. Congress. And they are adding a lot of nefarious rhetoric and a lot of harmful rhetoric in the congressional process. Is this a splintering of the Democratic Party between those who are of the radical nature and those who are maybe still mainstream? Or is this more indicative of a national movement where their positions won't just be adopted by Islamists who have been advocating for these for the past 30 or 40 years, but perhaps they will also garnish fellow travelers? Yeah, and I think this this points to the uh, threat posed by the idea of intersectionality. And to, to remind the listeners, intersectionality is this idea that you find in the progressive movement that each kind of oppression, whether it's oppressing poor people, black people, Hispanics, Muslims, whatever, any kind of oppression that you want to identify is actually interlinked with any other kind of oppression. And therefore, all oppressed people, so to speak, need to fight each kind of oppression equally. And and the danger of that is all you have to do to gain a ready-made coalition of fellow travelers is to convince people that your oppression is part of this intersectionality paradigm. And so what the Islamists have been able to do is to include the Muslim community as one of these oppressed peoples and to say that, therefore, Latino activists, GLBT activists, uh, you know, black activists need to support Islamists and need to support people like Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar or Keith Ellison as part of intersectionality. And that short-circuits the process of evaluating each position on its merits. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, smuggled-in radicalism as a result. But more than that, they also deny other oppressed peoples when it's not politically convenient for them. You have have a rise of institutionalized and systemic anti-Semitism in this country right now. And you even have other instances of this when we look at our allies abroad. When the president of Iran or the Ayatollah makes a comment saying that Israel will be destroyed before the end of this year, or when we see them call Israel a cancer, or 
when we see that there are other accusations, not just against Israel, but also against communities in the diaspora. And all of a sudden, these legislators and their allies are confronted with these criticisms and are asked to condemn them. They say, no, that's just a natural reaction to the occupation of the Palestinians. And then, even though the Jews become an oppressed minority, they are excluded from the intersectionalist camp. How how do you uh, respond to that? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, it, it speaks to the power of, of propaganda in general, that you can hold multiple contradictory positions without really needing to acknowledge the contradiction there. Uh, and, and in particular, the, the Islamists, and, and this is some of the unfortunate consequences of the continuing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, the Palestinians and their allies have been able to convince the world that Israel is a colonialist oppressor, uh, oppressor I'm sorry, and uh, that Israel is furthermore the powerful actor in this conflict. It's not Israel against the whole Muslim world. It's rather, you know, big, bad Israel crushing the puny Palestinians, and therefore Israel is the bad guy. And within that framework, you're suddenly able to look at Israel as the oppressor, as Jews in the United States as the oppressor, because even though we are numerically small, we theoretically control all of government. I wish it were true. Um, and within that framework, they're able to, to justify even the most crude, lurid anti-Semitism because it's not actually discrimination, because you can't discriminate against powerful people. That's their logic. Thank you, Warren. Now we are going to transition to our guest, Sariel Birnbaum, the author of the latest edition of Middle East Quarterly article, Egyptian Islamists Fight Back on Screen. Dr. Birnbaum is a Brenda Danette postdoctoral fellow at the Smart Institute on Communication at Hebrew University and is now entering his third year as a visiting Israeli professor at SUNY Binghamton. He received his PhD from Hebrew University after conducting a research on the history of Egyptian cinema. Birnbaum was a former research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Institute for the Advancement of Peace at Hebrew University and has participated in many conferences at Israeli universities. Dr. Birnbaum, welcome to the program. Hello. Good morning. So, what can you tell us about the Egyptian Islamists fighting back on screen? Well, the Egyptian cinema was used for many years, as long as it was, from the time it was invented, to fight against the Islamists and to mock them, to ridicule them, and to say that they are just blood, bloodthirsty, thirsty people that do not know anything about Islam. And in the years around the 2000, before the revolution of 2011, they understood that they must use also the audiovisual media to fight back, to show that their life is not, that actually they bring the torch of the true Islam, that actually Islam was falsified and they bring what really should be with Islam. So we see that for the first uh, 40 years of modern Egypt's existence, let's call it after the officers' revolution in the 50s, that there was a dramatic amount of cinema and other audiovisual presentations that the Egyptian ruling party, the National Democratic Party, the NDP, was using to inculcate Egyptians in the way in which they saw pan-Arabism. But then, in the 90s and in the aughts, we saw the Islamists discover that they could not compete with liberals by using only audio cassettes or written text. This is what you write in your piece. How did you find the Islamists were able to adapt to modern media and start putting their messages on screen? Well, they started in the message in, in the, with a tool that was very, uh, very simple, a short TV series, short film, 
that then you can put them on disks and then you can play the disk even with old computers. You can play them <coughs> with consoles, with game consoles, and you can play them everywhere. So they try to bring their own version of Islam and to answer the challenge that was given to them by liberals and by the West. In, in that case, for example, they actually were supporters of the theories of Edward Said long before Edward Said himself was uh, started to write. Namely, for example, the people, liberals, uh, Islamic liberals and people from the West, they had a heated discussion about the Hadith, the traditions that were ascribed to the Prophet Muhammad. So what really happened in history <clears throat> that in the first centuries of Islam, there were many, many hundreds of thousands of tradition that everybody wants to say. Nice ideas that, oh, the prophet, I heard that the prophet said that and that. I heard that the prophet did that and that. And uh, soon they found out that the religion will go astray because there are so many hundreds of thousands oral traditions about it. And uh, the scholars, medieval scholars of Islam, notable among them uh, Bukhari and Muslim, created the reliable codex of hadith. Now, when you move to modernity, uh, Islamic liberals and people that want to reform Islamic religion have claimed that, uh, well, they just have chosen some hadith that they saw right and everybody follow. That everybody must follow them just because these two guys in, in, in medieval time decided, oh, these are reliable, these are not reliable. Maybe we should look more and maybe we should uh, rejuvenate Islam by choosing maybe other traditions. Maybe we should not follow traditions that are problematic. So what the Islamists do, they, they do TV series or disc series about Bukhari and Muslim and say, that their work was wonderful, that they remembered everything, and whatever they've chosen is without any doubt reliable. So that's how they respond to the challenge of the liberals, and also they blame the liberals with being influenced by the West, by blameworthy ideas of the West that Islam is inferior. And the, the theory is actually is very funny that it's very similar to what Edward Said wrote, is that the West influenced them, the West influenced the liberals in order to destroy Islam, to make, to ridicule Islam, to make uh, Islam live the right path. And we have the natural conclusion of the Islamists adopting Saidian ideology, or at least theory as it relates to the West intervention in the Middle East, or as it relates to Islamic values and the, the morphing of that, that we must return to the original version of how Islam was practiced. And now we're going to put that on DVDs. We're going to allow it to be broadcast on television. And now with the advent of social media, all of these series that have been made are now going on YouTube, on Vimeo, and on different video outlets, which can now be viewed by the masses. You can watch everything. You just you just Google that, and you will find it on YouTube. You can find all of these audiovisual works online today, and everybody can watch them uh, everywhere. So this is symptomatic, not just of Egyptian Islamists, but also I would argue that there's probably other Muslim Brotherhood-related chapters and affinity groups from Morocco all the way to Iraq, from Turkey all the way down to Eritrea. 
that have been using the similar technology, adapting it to different languages, using different dubbing techniques. And once a series is made, it's able to influence across the entire Arabic and even non-Arabic speaking world. Uh, definitely. Actually, they always use a modern standard Arabic. They don't use the colloquial dialect. That's what they, uh, the norm is in all that relates to work that takes place in uh, medieval times. So once you make it, in some, some of the TV series can be made in Saudi Arabia or other countries, and they are there forever. And they want to answer to the uh, former image of Islam with uh, the Islamist way of uh, how they see their past. And in this case, for example, they blame the liberals and they blame the educational system of the uh, Arab regimes that they have turned Islam into what they call no more than lakes of blood. Because in the system of education, they're just saying, oh, uh, in Islam they were fighting one another, Muslims were fighting one another. And in Egypt, for example, they were talking about the pharaohs, and all the time they glorified the pharaohs, and they they talked they talk uh, deliberately about the civil wars that were all the time inside Islam, Muslims fighting one another. So in this case, they want to bring back to to minimize the aspects of internal fighting in Islam, and to show that actually that Islam was the main power that preserving the life of Muslim and stopping a former aggressions, foreign aggressions. So they say that, oh, Islam was at the core of fighting the Mongols, defeating the Mongols. Islam was at the heart of all those that fought the Crusaders, that defeat the Crusaders. And the ideas of all these Islamist groups, including also Hamas and other uh, elements, as you can read in the covenant of Hamas, is that well, nobody will really uh, fight for the Muslims without the Islam. Islam and jihad were at the core of the real defense of uh, our nation, of Islamic nation. And once we have abandoned it, we also became, became vulnerable to uh, invasion of uh, other countries. The Arab nationalism and other ideologies that are foreign to us are not as efficient in defending us. And then how they bring to the center the leaders, the Islamic leaders and religious leaders that for them were at the core of defense. So a very prominent example is Ibn Taymiyyah. Dr. Birnbaum, thank you for joining us this morning. How can we follow your work on Twitter, on social media? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can see it in a Middle East quarterly. And there, are, there is the book that I published in Hebrew, Back to the Past, Filmed History in uh, Arab cinema. I, I, I wrote it, meanwhile, it's, it's only in Hebrew, in Magnus Press, about how the media and cinema in the Arab world, and mainly in Egypt, it created the worldview, the Weltanschauung, of the entire Arab nation. Well, Dr. Birnbaum, while we wait for the English language translation, we do have Hebrew speakers that listen to this, uh, that listen to this broadcast, and I encourage them to purchase your book. Thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Next, Cliff Smith from The Washington Project. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. 
Islamists Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Joining us now is Cliff Smith, the director of MEF's Washington Project. Cliff, welcome to the program. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here again. So we had the first Oval Office address given by President Trump last night talking about border security, as he called it the humanitarian and security challenges facing America's southern border. There's a little slip of a, of a phrase that he used, alleging that terrorists or violent criminals of a Middle Eastern nature, one can juxtapose, are coming across the border. Yet, in fact, corrections that were offered by mainstream media outlets, they had said that only six known terrorists or members of terror organizations were apprehended over the last year coming across that border. What's your just general thoughts on Trump's border security address as it relates to concerns of Middle Eastern intent and of that of Islamism in this country, if any? And more than that, what is the actual danger that's posed to U.S. national security interests from the southern border as it relates to the infiltration of individuals coming from a uh, Islamist variety or a Middle Eastern variety? I, I know you've done some work on this as it relates to looking at the Bangladeshi citizens who have been coming across. And more than that, just what's your general reaction? Uh, well, I would say that my most uh, my first reaction would be that um, it's sort of misguided in some of the fact checks to say there you know there are only six terrorists coming across the border. I mean, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But even if it is true, um, certainly six terrorists can do a lot of damage. It is only you know what four in each of the planes that you know did nine eleven four or five, and so. You can seriously do a lot of damage. So it's misguided to say there's only six. I mean, it might not be our the only source of our problem, but it certainly is a source of a problem and something we should be concerned about. Um, and certainly, there the, the one thing we have to deal with is in a lot of different countries, um, we have people, we have regimes that will try to push people, you know, to different places. You know, when a lot of people don't have resources, that you know, people that are not our friends. Um, to come here, um, and that can be illegally. Um, as we've seen, there's been a lot of activity um, in, um, by Hezbollah in Latin America, for example. Uh, Middle East scholars have written a lot about that. And so, so clearly there is a threat here. 
Um, I, I would say that you know people crossing the border illegally, while certainly a problem, even from a you know jihadist and Islamist point of view, you know the people that are concerned with those issues, that there's a lot more of a problem too. Um, it's not just about illegal um, immigration; it's about legal immigration. Um, as you know, um, the San Bernardino shooters, um, you know, one of them came here legally. Had we bothered to look into her background, look into what she was posting openly on social media about jihad, about you know wanting death to the infidels and things of this nature, we would have known there was an issue. Which is why at MEF we've been pushing the idea of vetting immigrants not for their country, not for their religion, but for radical ideology, for dedication to radical Islam for a long time. And that's something I hope we can continue to do. So you bring up an important point here. It's not just about physical security. But it's also about being able to vet the ideological background of those coming into this country. Now, this was a gradual evolution that I believe that you, when you were in your consultations with the White House and with Congress, were able to provide a more uh, nuanced look at how we vet immigrants. Can you tell us a little bit more about extreme vetting and the way in which the Middle East Forum has tried to broadcast that or, or try to categorize that rather than just the conversation going on right, about, uh, right now about physical immigration and about border security? What, what, what do we add to the mix? Sure. Well, you know, back when in 2015, in late 2015, when then-candidate Donald Trump you know, famously said we should ban Muslims from coming to this country until we figure out what's going on. Um, you know, us at the Middle East Forum kind of said, look, he's trying to do something valuable here. He's talking about keeping people that hate us from coming here. His method is misguided, um, you know, because the, the, most Muslims are fine from most countries. And countries may have more or less radicals in them. But, for example, the, the Halloween um, killer back in New York a while back that drove a truck and killed a number of people um, was from... Um, Kazakhstan, which has no particular history of radicalism. So it's not really about a country. It's not really about a religion. It's really about a specific interpretation of a specific religion. It's about a specific interpretation of Islam, which makes up a significant but by no means majority of Muslims. Um, people that are Islamists make up, you know, maybe 10 percent, maybe 15 percent of Islam, um, which is, you know, a big number, but still doesn't change the fact that most are not. So what we suggested was, look, it's not about country, it's not about religion, it's about a specific version, an ideology. And what we should be doing is trying to ask questions about people's ideology as it relates to um, their background. In other words, you know, do you believe people can convert to another religion? If, you know, your family member converted to another religion, what would you do? Can women work outside the home? Um, you know, would you be willing to work with law enforcement against terrorism, things like this? would be questions that would get at someone's ideology rather than just their religion. And if they are Muslims that are moderates, that you know, believe that their faith is, you know, can inform their public views, but that ultimately um, they're not theocrats, then we shouldn't have a real problem with them. However, if they believe that it is their job to impose their religion on people using the government, um, that certainly is a problem politically, and it um, often leads to terrorism. David Cameron famously said that Islamism is a conveyor belt that leads to terrorism, not a bulwark against it. And we should be approaching it from that point of view. So you've also been following a scandal that the Middle East Forum actually was able to uncover a few years ago related to American funding 
of Islamists and even Al-Qaeda-related institutions in Sudan. Now, we've talked about this on the program before as it relates to ISRA, the Islamic Relief Agency, and also World Vision, the United States' largest evangelical charity. But what new developments have come across now as it relates to World Vision's complicity and knowledge in the funding of ISRA and this Al-Qaeda affiliate? Well, you know, there's just a new story today um, in the American thinker that is um, exposing this even more. As it, um, Things have continually um, become more and more troubling. Um, here's what we know. We knew from the beginning that USAID um, gave a grant to ISRA, a designated al-Qaeda funding charity. Uh, it actually helped by the phone that guided, um, you know, al-Qaeda attacks in the late 1990s in Africa. Um, it... Um, has been in bed with bin Laden for a number of years, which led to its designation after 9-11 as a terrorist funding charity. We knew that from the outset. Um, What has gotten more and more troubling has been um, World Vision's lack of being willing to deal with, you know, why did this happen? Why did they partner with this organization? Once they partnered with it, once they were told, why did they fight to keep partnering with it? Um, They haven't been very forthcoming. Um, we wrote articles um, exposing their complicit, complicity in it. We talked to people about it. Um, and then just last month, um, Mindy Bells of World Magazine, who uh, is a reporter that has spent substantial amount of time on the ground in Sudan, in Iraq, in Israel, in Syria, um, and all over um, the Middle East and Africa, wrote an essay discussing many of the things that we had discussed and used some more information that we had um, come across that really puts it in even worse light. We can now say to a metaphysical certainty that this was not a one-time incident of them funding this group, but there was a years-long relationship that lasted at least from 2011 to 2015, possibly longer, and involved at least several different projects, um, some funded by taxpayers, some not, um, that went to this. Um, and it looks very likely that, in fact, um, all the money that flowed into the Blue Nile region, the Blue Nile state of Sudan, went directly from World Vision to ISRA, this designated al-Qaeda charity. Um, and they have refused to be forthcoming about this. Um, Christian leaders in an article today in American Thinker have been raising concerns about this. Um, from different churches, um, and, we, and the most recent article specifically discussed churches in the Philadelphia, Delaware um, region, and uh, more I know have personally contacted me raising concern. I think it's really time for um, World Vision's donors and taxpayers but you know, to hold them accountable because so far they've done, from best we can tell, nothing to reform the system that led to them having a years-long relationship with a designated al-Qaeda funding charity. So we have now, I, I think anybody who's listening to this program, incensed listeners who are trying to express their outrage against World Vision. What can they do? You know, the, the first thing I would do is, you know, if you are, um, if you are fund, um, funding World Vision or even sponsoring a child with World Vision, I know you have, you know, good intentions. I know you have, uh, you want to... Um, help children in Africa um, and other places around the world in conflict regions, that's all good. World Vision isn't the only outlet to do that, though. There are a hundred different organizations, even um, you know, other evangelical Christian organizations like Samaritan's Purse, uh, World Concern, as opposed to World Vision. Um, there's quite a few others 
that have done it that, you know, to the best of my knowledge, have never gotten caught up um, in funding terrorism. Um, and it's worth mentioning, this is actually the third time in the last decade, actually um, the last uh, six years, that World Vision has got caught up in funding terrorism. Um, the, you know, it's a systemic problem. It's not just a one-off. Um, and so, but, you know, I would cut it off. I would cut off your funding. I would encourage your members of your church to cut off their funding. You know, you can, it can go to another organization to accomplish the same thing. I don't think they're going to reform until their donors um, uh, really force them to reform. Um, I also think that, you know, talking to some of the charity regulators that uh, look into this kind of thing and, you know, making your concerns known is important. I think writing to your member of Congress and saying, hey, look, these guys are a major recipient of USAID money, and at the very least, they need to be asked some very tough questions about how they're utilizing this money um, before they get any more. Um, at the very least, ask a lot of tough questions and be made to answer. Well, Cliff, I hope that your advocacy and the organization <clears> – <throat> That is sponsoring, or at least commingling, with these Al Qaeda affiliates. And they've also wor- they've worked with Hamas. They've worked with mm-hmm. the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, right? The PFLP. That's correct. That's correct. Those are the other two incidents. One was in 2012. We don't know how long it went out for. Another one um, in Gaza, funding Hamas. The, the World Vision's former director in Gaza is currently on trial in Israel for funneling millions to Hamas. And again, there's um, we don't know the number, but there was probably. Um, millions, you know, going to um, ISRA, the Al Qaeda funding um, charity in Sudan. And we know there were hundreds of thousands, or probably millions, um, based on what we know. So this is a very large problem involving a whole lot of money. So Cliff, I'm going to ask you to stay around for the next segment, if that's okay. Sure. And we're going to invite listeners to call in to ask questions to Mr. Smith. We can be reached at one eight 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 three two nine three three zero six. Call into the program at 1-888-329-3306. We'll be back after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y... Someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio. We're back with Cliff Smith on the air. And Cliff, we have a question that's come across us from Twitter. 
Uh, this is from Jackson Reed. He asks, what are the Democrats doing to protect American interests in the Middle East now that they've taken control of the House of Representatives? Cliff? You know, that's an interesting question, and I think it's one without a clear answer. Um, they, I think that um, there were a lot of people elected um, in the last election that clearly, from our point of view, um, you know, are a problem. Ilan Omar, Rashid Talib have been, you know, openly pro-Islamist, have been openly anti-Israel, I would say anti-Semitic in a number of cases, and that's very troubling. Um, however, you know, they were elected as... Uh, Democrats and safe Democratic seats that are overwhelmingly very progressive, um, that are not necessarily the mainstream of every Democrat um, that was elected in the last cycle. Um, there's been a number of other Democrats that have been elected in more traditionally Republican districts. Many of them are former veterans or are former um, you know, intelligence officials um, that have a you know, variety of backgrounds that might be much more interested in security. Um, and also, those Democrats in those kinds of districts are going to need to win over, um, you know, continue to win over um, moderate voters, you know, Republican-leaning voters, um, security-minded voters, um, in order to stay in office. Um, so, I think it's an unwritten, um, it's an unwritten chapter. I think that uh, right now, you know, they clearly have a base that is. Um, Sort of, sort of believe that you know radical Islamism is a myth, or doesn't really matter, or that security issues are overblown. But you know the, the votes, votes a lot of the moderates, the people that made the majority for the Democrats, need um, are going to be concerned about these things. So I think in the coming weeks and months we will see um, sort of which side of the scrum ends up winning the day. Um, my hope is that with Middle East Forum's um, advocacy and help, we can get, you know, especially some of the, uh, a lot of the moderate Democrats on board with measures that will help protect uh, America from Middle Eastern threats. Thanks. Another question coming in here from Alana Pollack. She asks on Facebook, what is the United States doing with its Department of Homeland Security and being able to fight back against the Islamist threat. We hear a lot about what's going on overseas, but what's going on here at home? That is um, somewhat unclear. Uh, you know, obviously the Home Department of Homeland Security, um, you know, does a number of things ranging from border security to customs control and things of that nature. Um, however, they've also done things um, that have been more problematic. For example, uh, countering violent extremism, which became... Um, you know, a big thing um, for the Department of Homeland Security um, under the late Obama years where they tried to, you know, give government money to different organizations to fight violent extremism. Um, for one thing, we saw that as problematic um, as being not really discussing the issue. I mean, all types of violent extremism may be bad, but not all of them are equally prominent or equally concerning at any given time. And it's clearly you know, Islamic, radical Islamic ideology, radical Islamic violent extremism that is the key problem. And some of those grants um, went to Islamist organizations, went to organizations that have ideologies that, again, as I discussed earlier with David Cameron, you know, serve as a conveyor belt to terrorism, not as a bulwark against it. Um, however, it should be noted that many of those grants were undone um, by the Trump administration in the early months, the ones that went to Islamist groups. And so that's good. 
Um, however, there has been a complete lack of transparency, for example, in how they made that decision, either the Obama administration or the Trump administration, or what future grants um, might entail or who might get them. Um, I think there needs to be you know, more of a criteria about how um, those kinds of groups, um, you know, how when the government gives out its money, who's it's giving it to? We need better guidelines and guidance on how that's going to happen going forward, because we know that, you know, when these kinds of issues approach, there's a, there's divided, there's different ideas about who it should go to. And we're not always clear on what the governmental policy is on either side. Thanks. Here's another question from Facebook from Dustin Molinsky. Are Trump's Iran sanctions working to end the Iranian nuclear program? I think the Iran nuclear program is seen by the Iranian regime as their crown jewel. I think as long as the Ayatollahs um, are in power, they will try their best to pursue it. Um, so in a certain sense, no, it's not dealing with the problem. In another sense, however, you know, you're always dealing with, you know, reality and the fact that the regime is there. And here's what it is doing. It is restricting their options. It is slowing them down. It is causing them problems. Um, it's not always covered well in Western media, but um, there have been years of protests in Iran um, for the, and that have gone continually um, in different ways and have not entirely stopped and continue. Clearly, the people are not feeling, um, you know, we're feeling the pain, but most of them are not blaming America. Most of them are blaming their own leaders. And it is clear that it is limiting the options of the Ayatollahs. It is clear that the people of Iran blame primarily their leaders, not America, for the predicament they're in. And so I think it is moving the paradigm into a place where the Ayatollahs have fewer options and less ability to fund their nuclear program. And hopefully, I, if you know, the Trump administration makes uh, more wise choices and Congress makes more wise choices and some of our allies make you know, better choices, and continually put them in a box and force them into a situation where they have to um, abandon their program or at the very least put it far in the back burner so you know, think it gives us more time to find other ways to disrupt and destroy it. Yeah, and I, and I think that it's important to make a note here that the Iran sanctions create a binary option for countries that want to trade with Iran. You either go and you try to do your trade with the United States or we'll cut you off from the U.S. financial system if you choose Iran over us. That might make sense exactly. for North Korea, for Syria, for other reputable <clears throat> actors around the rest of the world who find themselves in the Iran zone handbasket. But besides Russia and maybe China, who might be inching close to them because of the petroleum deals that they can get there as part of their expanding economy – you have to be able to give that choice, especially to America's allies in the West. And one of the problems that I see, Cliff, that keeps on coming up are countries that are trying to find ways around their deals with Iran. For instance, yeah. you have Italy now giving a 5 billion euro line of credit to the Iranian economy to try to effectuate joint deals in the hydrocarbon resource space. You have the country of Senegal which is allowing Iranians to manufacture their entire police car fleet and also their entire taxi fleet. You have Argentina, who continues to deal with Iran in terms of its oil uh, uh, nature. Germany and even Azerbaijan and Pakistan are trying to find ways to have joint development projects to help build Iranian infrastructure. Now, one thing that I'd like to know about is the exemption waivers 
that the Trump administration granted to countries so they could continue importing Iranian oil and Iranian natural gas. Do we know when this might come to an end? I don't think we really know that. Um, I, I do think that in general, the Trump, the Trump administration has been pretty sensible in realizing that, you know, most people should not get waivers. There are some situations where there are countries that are favorable to us in general that probably can't disentangle themselves overnight. Um, but I do hope that they continue to pressure countries, you know, like Italy, like Senegal, like you pointed out, that are continuing to do things that clearly are not, you know, some sort of, you know, giant national security concern for them. It's just a matter of making a buck um, that we ought to be pressuring and, um, you know, as you pointed out, giving them a stark choice, you know, hey, it's them or us, because at the end of the day, um, again, as you said, with a few possible exceptions, the vast majority of countries, certainly in Europe, and um, are going to go with the U.S. rather than Iran. The, the money is here, not there. Cliff Smith, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Greg. Now, just to understand the final point here as it relates to Iran and also this latest kerfuffle between Turkey and the United States over John Bolton's comments. I think that to be able to understand the stark difference between America's challenges in the Middle East, whether it relates to a U.S. withdrawal from Syria or the imposition of soft measures, those that don't amount to the use of political violence or the monopoly of violence which is being used against another country, country like Iran that we have to remember the U.S. has a very deep amount of tools that it can use and a wide array of options to confront threats in that region. But as it relates to Iran, sanctions work now. As it relates to Syria, military force is still the option that must be exercised because there is still a kinetic threat to the United States. More than that, when Bolton and Pompeo, who's now going on a world a whirlwind tour around the rest of the region, visit there, they have to know that they have the backing of the president. And we saw their messages in concert with Trump's statements that came out yesterday before the border security speech. Keep the troops in Syria. Keep the sanctions on Iran. And until they say, uncle, that's the policy that the U.S. and its government has to be able to follow I want to thank Delaney Janchik for arranging our guest today. Our guests, Ariel Birnbaum and Cliff Smith, Warren Litwin covering Islamists and politics. And we'll have a lot more next week here on MEF Century Radio on WWDB AM 860, Philadelphia Talk. Next, American Workers Radio by American.